Welcome back to Millennial History. Today is part three of our stories from Romania. Stick around until the end of the episode to hear an anecdote from host Andrea Vutz. I mean, I just find it really interesting. <laughs> Here. This is the talk about everything. Because there's just so much to talk about. Prove ourselves worthy of the majority. Millennial History. Welcome to Millennial History. In this podcast, we speak with millennials who lived important events in recent world history from up close. This is the third and final part of our series on Romania. Earlier, we got to know Katinka and Joanna. They were both born in Romania during the final years of the dictatorship of Nicolae Ceausescu. Katinka is still in Romania and Joanna was adopted when she was four from an orphanage into America. They painted the picture of the forceful control that they were born into and the wild west of the 90s in which their lives were uprooted and completely changed. If you listen back to those first two episodes, you will be able to experience this final one to the fullest. We will dive into what it means to raise a child and how you can start to live your life when the basis of your existence has been rocked so many times. Here's what you can expect. My mother said, when I saw you for the first time, I loved you instantly. But before, when I was just something in her belly, I was something she did not want. My mind is always awake. I can tell you about myself, I am never completely relaxed. There's a whole generation of us. We are called the decretei. We are the children of the decree. I'm terrified of being out of control. I, I think people can survive on many different uh, amounts. For, for me, I think it's might be considerably less than for some others. I don't think the human condition is designed to make people comfortable. We cannot put down pillows around every topic that we discuss. We told our parents that we didn't choose to come into this world. They did not ask to be born. I did not ask to exist. Take responsibility for the fact that you created me. My name is Andrea Wutz. I am a musical journalist. As always, I'm joined in the studio by composer and sound designer Luke Dean. And all of the music you will hear has been offered by musicians from Romania. Let's go. A friend of mine, Christine, she said, I've not seen a lot of good parenting in my generation. I completely agree with that. Yes, I completely agree with it. It was not a lot of good parenting. I appreciate and I have a very nice relationship with my mother as an adult, but there's something that completely lacked in our relationship, mother-daughter. A sort of bond, a sort that I always perceived her as being more focused on herself. It's a very sterile relationship based on care and nurture on a very practical level. She couldn't relate to the child. That, that relationship between mother and child just was never there. Later, through my teens, she also did not feel that I'm giving her anything, you know? 
There was no exchange being made, no energy circulated between us. Somehow she was never a hundred percent there because she always wanted to be somewhere else or with somebody else or doing something else. She was not prepared to have a child back then. It happened too early for her. She wasn't whole enough as an individual in order to have something to give, to offer, to be generous, to be able to invest, to prioritize the child. It was always this frustration, not that she did not love me, but that she did not actually know what to do with me. She finally had the opportunity to be an individual, to be an architect, to be an artist, to be a woman. How can you prioritize in this context being a mother? She had this line that for me was incredibly strong that she said, I had to choose between a man and a child, the man being her second husband, with whom she still has a very nice relationship, la la la, and I chose a man. So it wasn't a physical abandonment, but it was an emotional abandonment. And why couldn't she have both, choose for both of you? Because she didn't want me in the first place. What would you say is most important for good parenting? Two things, um, accepting from the beginning that is an act of generosity, not bringing children into the world to make yourself whole again or feel like you have achieved the goal or have somebody to lean on when you're old. And second of all, accepting the responsibility that children are extremely influenceable of everything that is around them, and that actually raising a child, it is a creative process. And if you don't feel this, I, I, I completely believe that not everybody should have children. Moving the center of your life from yourself to somebody else, whoever that person is which I think is core to having a child. It is a mirror of who you really are. Children perceive, they're like small antennas, even if they don't know to attribute meaning to what they're feeling. You have multiple people taking care of you. You're dealing with 12 women taking care of 100 children. So there isn't really um, a security of communication. And you have to, to be able to read each person that works with you as a child who is safe and who's not. Your main goal is to avoid getting the living daylights kicked out of you. You have to read, you have to know when you can make, when it's safe to make mistakes and when it isn't. The ability to survive in an institutionalized setting is very much dependent on who is safe and who is not. I still have a pretty rigorous, you know, if I make a mistake or do something that really upsets somebody, I really feel bad about it. I'm hyper aware of, of my, of how I am interacting with people on a level that's, that's quite 
disconcerting <laughs> from time to time. There is this moment that happens when I meet people where I am gauging, okay, is this person safe or not safe? It's not that I, you know, give people criterion that they have to fill out, but there is always this moment where I'm, I'm a bit reserved. And I think it's just because there is that level of protection I have until I sort of sense if somebody's, okay, well, are you mostly okay or mostly not okay? I can sense it immediately first always with my breath. So if I'm having a hard time, I, I can notice if I'm sort of running out of breath talking to people. It's because I'm not breathing well around them. Some people have told me that it sometimes looks like I'm checking somebody out <laughs> because I am kind of giving them the, the up and down. <laughs> this mechanism is always there. There's very few people that I'm not making that calculation with. In fact, there's almost nobody that I interact with that I don't have that sense of calculation. How do you do it to read people? Well, um, so I, I do sense people on a color spectrum. It's actually like, it's dark colors versus light colors. And, and if I see people in a darker color, like brown, black, things like this, it's usually not going very well. <laughs> That's also a survival mechanism, being able to recognize somebody else's emotions and feel them. I see this with other people that are adopted too. They do tend to be more sensitive on this level of being able to step into somebody else's world and experience their own reality from someone else's world. I always felt unloved. Felt like, yeah, like, like I was being egotistical wanting more than it was there for me. Because I was comparing to other children whose parents were dead, whose parents were just absent, who have been abandoned. And I say, how do those children feel if I feel like this? It was very hard to accept that the trauma happened before I was even brought into existence. That there was a conscience in that little baby that was inside my mother's belly who perceived that and who came into the world with this feeling of lacking this sort of love. That was very hard for my brain to accept, you know? First, I started looking into my childhood, you know, like psychoanalysts, and trying to find the hurtful event. When my mother hit me, when my mother, no. But actually, it was even deeper. We had to get psychological insight because our parents did not know as well. My mother said, when I saw you for the first time, I loved you instantly. But before, when I was just something in her belly, I was something she did not want. 
There's a whole generation of us. We are called the decretsei. So the decree was the normative act through which it was stated that women cannot have abortions. We are the children of the decree. This decree that produces. If you are all children of the decree, that you're also in general like a generation of unwanted children. Definitely. That is precisely the concept that I'm working on. And, uh, and what does that do to you to feel unwanted? Being very sensitive to being wanted and to creating structures or environments where you're necessary, you know, needed somehow. Because it's unwanted and unneeded. At least I can be needed, at least I can offer something that makes me valuable. But I'm not entitled by default, I don't have a value of my own. It's through what I do that I can gain value and become meaningful to the others. And that there is, and that, yeah, putting also a pressure on myself for doing something meaningful. My dark night of the soul is this, yeah, feeling extremely unloved, unwanted, unneeded, and completely disconnected, like the world could go on easily without me. I can tell you about myself, I am never completely relaxed. I never lose this 5% of awareness and lucidity and control over things. Like I'm in a chess game, you know? My brain works like in a chess game. I feel more secure when I can anticipate more moves. I always have the chess board, yes. I was trained for that my whole life, yes. I'm doing that by default. There is no energy, extra energy I have to put in that because that survival mechanism works in the background always. mind is always awake. This instinct of survival is always present, even in the most pleasant activities and the most relaxing and endearing bonds that I experience. There is still 5% that's always awake and ready to battle, ready to fight, ready to defend. It's valid for my whole generation. I, I don't think I'm special in this regard at all. You always have to be aware, perceive the danger. There is always the possibility of danger. And the natural state is being prepared for it. For example, like how does that 5%, how does it show now that we are talking? I'm very much in my brain while I'm having this conversation with you. I'm not talking from my stomach. I'm talking from my chest up. <laughs> yeah. This is the part that is engaged, because that's my way of defending myself somehow, you know? It's like a shield that I need to use in order to transmit information and not to go into the trauma. As though there's a tiny bit of plexiglass or a bubble around you. Exactly, 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 exactly. I, I don't know that I ever experience myself without any inhibition at all 
if I see people getting drunk in the street and doing crazy things because they're drunk, I never, I don't know what that's like to be out of control like that. For me, it's, it's, I'm terrified of being out of control. I don't really, yeah, I don't know what it's like to be fully out of control. And what is the fear of going out of control? What would happen then? Well, I don't like getting in trouble and I don't like doing anything wrong. When you come from an environment that's so highly controlled, being out of control, of course, is very dangerous. What do you think for you the biggest part of that trauma is what you say, what you always carry with you? Mm. I think this fear of the other, yes. If you've never known anything else than being on the lookout, like this state of hypervigilance, how do you even know what letting go of that 5%, what that will look like? You don't know. You can only see it in the others. I only realized that about myself after meeting a lot of people who were able to let go of that 5%. I wasn't aware that I'm in this lookout. It seemed like the natural state of things. It has always been like that and it will be forever like that. And then I met people who were honestly able to relax and trust the world, you know, trust life, trust there's something out there for them, that the universe protects them. And I said, oh my God, How can you do that? What did you, what? <laughs> Is this possible? Did you switch off your brain? Is there a button to press that I'm not aware of? What's your secret? <laughs> It is a sort of relaxation. It is as simple as that. It's just a relaxation towards life, towards the others. I mean, no. Not being fearful being able to do the things from a place of love because you know our brain basically only knows these two feelings love and fear love and fear my adoptive parents passing away my father when i was nine and my mother when i was 24 essentially when both your adoptive parents die you're kind of an orphan again I also don't run around saying, hey, I'm adopted from Romania and twice orphaned, you know. I prefer not to wear that badge of honor. People don't necessarily realize how much I've experienced or, or how much I've had to learn how to accept shifts and changes in my reality. I do find a certain enjoyment in overcoming challenges. Not that I particularly want to be challenged too much more in life, to be honest, because I've had, I, I feel that if I were to take any more challenges, I might be a bit selfish. A lot of people are really quite impressed by how much I survive. Surviving is of course very different than thriving. You know, surviving as a, you know, a heartbeat and lungs is, is It's not the same, you know, you can use a machine for that even, so it's not the same as thriving. What do you think is the minimum that you need for survival? Oh, 
It depends on how you define survival. I, I think people can survive on many different uh, amounts. For, for me, I think it might be considerably less than for some others. I think you need only to have a community that you feel like you belong to. Nobody trusts you if you're an outsider. Uh, if you come into a city after being banished from another city, nobody trusts you, and then you don't belong. So trust is basically all about belonging. The number one thing you need for survival is belonging to something. Is there a community of Romanian adoptees? Yes. Yeah, there are several Facebook groups, uh, most of which I have left. Because? Because I find that it might be where we are currently in our cultural conversations, how we discuss difficult topics, but it's not always well received if I show too much empathy towards the caregivers in the orphanage. In a lot of these adoption community groups, there there is a big focus on what was done to the children. And I know that I have stepped in some hot water by saying, well, of course, of course this happened, but we also have to recognize what were the stresses that they were being put under, the caretakers. It doesn't make it okay what happened, but that we don't necessarily have to turn them into the evil good and evil argument, right? That we can say, yeah, I mean, you put a society under pressure for long enough and, and unkind things will happen. I went back in April of 2015 just on my own, I was 28. While I did not speak the language, I did not feel uncomfortable at all. And nobody, everybody spoke Romanian to me. I just looked Romanian to people. They still have the same play structure that was there when I was a child. We had slides painted, you know, red, blue, green, these types of things. And, and that slide was still there, very rusted, but still there. When I came around the corner and I saw those slides, I, I immediately said, I'm 100% sure this is my building. It's not a Hallmark movie moment, you know, where you start sobbing and oh, having all these memories. And for me, it was just this feeling of, I'm really glad that I'm just back at the building where I was as a child. I don't feel ashamed to, to say that I grew up in an orphanage for a certain period of time. And in fact, going back to visit it, when I stood outside the building, I think a lot of people, they asked me after, well, wasn't that very triggering? I said, well, maybe, but for me, I just sort of felt in a way like, oh, it's nice to be by this building again, you know, the one that I, I was part of. Because you are part of something.
Why should we care? That's a great question. I don't think we have to care. We do plenty of not caring about other people. We go out of our way to do huge, beautiful things that help people, but we don't do the things every day that help people. The being aware of, did I just step in front of somebody who was waiting? Or somebody who's taking too long to order and we get upset at them and we don't think, okay, maybe their mother just died. One of my little personal social projects is that from time to time, if somebody is looking very confused, ordering behind me, and I, and I can see that they're just flustered or frustrated or something, I will sometimes just pay for their drink. I would say 80% of the time, that person has said to me, oh my gosh, thank you so much, my, my brother just died. It's also nice if we do big projects too, big humanitarian projects too, but... But, uh, but I wonder if we don't need so many of the big projects if we just have start having smaller projects. It's such a small, it's, it's such a small thing to do to just notice if somebody else is having a hard time and instead of thinking that they're having a problem with you or that they're having an attitude issue or something, to just ask. Are you okay? I think the thing that disappoints me most in, in, in society that I see around me is that I think we do have, we do have the ability to sense people and we just turn, turn it off. Why should we care? Mm. How easy it is to bankrupt humanity. I think that's at the core of everything. You know, these sort of systems alienate human beings from themselves and from the others. And this process of re-educating takes a long, long, long time. It takes so much longer to heal than to actually do the damage. Romanians have this experience of the Western world. What is good to be taken as a model and what is just as bankrupt, just as morally corrupt as it was in communism. Eastern Europe is going to be the place where new philosophies will emerge. The new ways of functioning politically, economically, socially, for the future are going to come from these people. It sounds so logical, because you've seen, you've known both. Absolutely, and we're completely aware that none of them is right. From different perspectives, they each have a part that's good, they each have a part that's bad. We need to combine this and also add something else and create new forms. That is very motivating and very touching in the same time. I mean, we are, as we speak, creating the Romanian identity. There are very few places on this planet that are living now this sort of a moment, this sort of an opportunity. We have been the slaves of somebody else's choices for so long. It's one of the main goals of my life and I think of most of the people I have around to just push forward, risk it, do something new. I don't want to thank Corona for everything, but I do feel that it has changed me. 
I might not have been so willing before this time to have this discussion because maybe I'm afraid I'll say something wrong that will offend somebody. We cannot put down pillows around every topic that we discuss. I don't think the human condition is designed to make people comfortable. We are only uncomfortable because we don't have enough of these conversations. I think one of the things that helped us heal was that we shared our stories. Getting rid of that burden of shame. I remember how hard it was to have these conversations at first. I, I felt that I was betraying, you know, my family. Betraying something extremely intimate. It was our own little revolutions within our own little families. discussing the team with my friends, we all came to the idea that at least at one point through our childhood or adolescence, we told our parents that we didn't choose to come into this world. So if you have a problem with me, if you don't like me, if nothing that I do is actually right, it's not my fault because I did not ask to be born. I did not ask to exist. Take responsibility for the fact that you created me. I remember telling this to my mother, I need this acknowledgement. Little Katinka needs this acknowledgement. Needs her mother to say, I know I've hurt you. And I need to hear it from you. I need you to accept that. Though you didn't want it, you hurt me. And then I can get over it. When it comes to a child, the child will waste a lot of time in becoming whole. I think I became whole somewhere around 30, you know. I had a very tensioned relationship with my family and to the world. Always asking a lot of questions, always feeling like there's something that's missing, that's something that just doesn't make sense. The classic metaphor, especially in the Eastern philosophy, was bearing your own cross. I'm bearing like this cross of my ancestral history that is always with me and I'm trying to transform it for something that I carry on my back to something that I'm carrying around my neck. Making it smaller and smaller and smaller and accepting it that I am defined by that cross. I remember the moment when I was 30 or 31, I said, I finally know who I am. It's been such a long journey. I finally understand what are these things that I'm feeling throughout my body and throughout my soul. But the information came out of these clashes with the people around. Hard clashes with reality, huge disappointments, huge frustrations, failing, failing and failing and failing. I think my duty and the duty of my generation is just to push forward, accepting that is a form of sacrifice and that we do it for the next generation. I have this strong image from the revolution that you had this very young man with these pieces of paper on which they wrote, our children will be free. And I think actually it will only happen now.
our children will be free. While there was a lot of damage done, there, there are a lot of us that are okay. We're not all damaged. Please don't label us as such either. You wouldn't be able to tell I was adopted unless you asked. What are like the typical questions? Do you remember anything? And of course, this is the dangerous question. What drives a lot of the interest is that people, they want to hear some sort of dramatic story. I always want to know why somebody is asking the question. Can I ask something really, really, you, you can really say no. Where do you have your scars? Oh, yeah. They, there's a couple on, like, by my ribs in the back. Um, I actually have some other ones. This is the, this is the famous one. Why is, I, why is that the famous oh, one? Oh, I just call it famous because you can really see it. The Romanians were known for smoking. And so it was not uncommon to get the end of a cigarette butt on your arm. For years, I never talked to anybody about it. This is a product of some good therapy, <laughs> that I can just mention it comfortably. Other people might have psychological markings that you can't see. And in my case, I have some physical markings that, that illustrate that. That mark stays with me, but it's also part of them. It's also a lasting mark of somebody else's pain. This show was brought to you by Resonate Productions. Many thanks to all the musicians who donated their songs once again for this episode. Zenaitri, Simina Oprieșcu, Surorile Oshoyanu, Georgi Dumitriu, Alex Simu and Quintet, Robin and the Backstabbers, Musai Soundworks and Via Dake. You can find all of them on facebook.com slash musicaljournalism. Hey, Stefano from Are We Europe jumping in. That's it for part three of our three-part series about stories from Romania. In two weeks, we'll be back with two more parts, but this time from Northern Ireland. And here now is host Andrea Wutz talking about a question that she keeps as her North Star when telling stories. Enjoy, and we'll see you in two weeks. Making the Romanian episodes really changed me as a person. What they described about not feeling safe with other people, never really trusting other people, not being able to experience yourself without any inhibition, not having a value of your own, only wanting to do stuff for others or the world in order to have the right to be here, always playing a chess game in your head with more moves to anticipate to keep you in control and safe. All of these things. I felt so sorry for them. This is not a life. And I also felt I know this very well, even though I don't come from Romania or from a dictatorship. I have to look into this. So it actually set me on a path of looking into the question, how to feel safe? Because without feeling safe, you are stuck in survival mode. So I think this question, how to feel safe, is actually a question to the meaning of life itself. And also, one thing that Katinka said is, there were even a few people 
from other countries that were just able to to trust the world and trust other people. And I was like, what? How do you do that? Is there like a button in your brain that you can switch and then become like this so playful and so free? And even though I am from one of these privileged countries, I also would love to find that button. <laughs>